This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Thank you again for joining us for another great week on the show. As has been our pattern as of late, we have another new and interesting and exciting guest who's joining us on the table. His name is Christopher Giuliano. He is a clinical pharmacist at both Wayne State University and St. John Hospital Medical Center. We are very excited to have him as he brings a unique perspective as a pharmacist to the show. And so, Chris, welcome to the rounds table. Thanks, Kieran. So as you know, uh, listeners, I like to jump right in and get started with things. So, Chris, why don't you introduce the article that you chose for this week? Yeah, so I'm really excited about this article and the title. It's going to be looking at the combination. And so throughout while I'm talking about this today, I'm going to refer to it as the combo Piperacillin, Tazobactam, and Vancomycin versus the other antibiotics that were combined together with Vancomycin. This first appeared online in February in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. Fantastic. Uh, I certainly use all of those antibiotics on a semi-regular basis, unfortunately. Tell us, Chris, what is the bottom line uh, for this study? The combination of Vancomycin and Piperacillin increased the risk of acute kidney injury by 21%. Uh, That comes out to a number needed to harm of five compared to the other combination of antibiotics. Wow, sounds like a very impressive finding. Let's uh, dig into the details a little more and unpack uh, whether we think that this finding is real and should change our clinical practice. But first, Chris, Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this article, either personally or framed in the context of what we know about the risk of AKI with these antibiotics? Sure. So a few years ago, um, I was reviewing some of the articles that had recently been published, and I noticed a few observational studies had come out talking about this risk. And this really surprised me because there's not a very good explanation on why this combination would increase the risk of kidney injury. And there was some conflicting information in the literature. So at the time, I decided, well, let's do a meta-analysis and see how all this plays out. And so we did the meta-analysis, and we found a about a, four, a fourfold increase in the odds of acute kidney injury with the combination. But a lot of these studies were retrospective and they were observational in nature. And so I was excited to see that um, a study with potentially higher quality as it was prospective um, had been published. Absolutely. And can you tell us just for those listeners who may not be as familiar with using these types of combinations of drugs, why might a clinician or a pharmacist recommend the combination of vancomycin and one of piptazo or the other medications, uh, antibiotics that you mentioned? Yeah, so these combinations of medications are commonly used together to really treat a broad range of potential bacteria in someone that is very severely ill. Um, Because you don't want to miss the bacteria right away. Uh, using um, vancomy- vancomycin, which primarily covers your gram-positive bacteria, and then using um, piperacillin tazobactam, which covers everything else, um, really gives a broad range of coverage. Yeah, so really what we're looking at is covering 
the usual sort of grand positives and grand negatives, but also the additional uh, empiric coverage of uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, as well as some anti-pseudomonal coverage in those different antibiotics. Is that fair to say? That's correct. All right. So you mentioned that this was a prospective uh, cohort study, is a higher quality approach. But tell us, uh, where did they actually conduct this study, and uh, who were the patients that they wanted to include to answer these questions? Yes, so this was a multi-center study in four hospitals throughout the U.S. These hospitals were located in three different states, Texas, Missouri, and South Dakota. And what about the patients that they wanted to include? So they included patients um, that were more than 18 years of age that were receiving either vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam together, that combo, or vancomycin combined with cefepime or meropenem. And they had to be on these together for at least 48 hours. They excluded patients primarily that had any kidney issues that could affect how you would interpret the results of the study. So this could include things like they already had AKI before the antibiotics were started, if they had CKD stage 3 or greater, or if they already had a serum creatinine greater than 1.5. And when it all came out in the wash, so to speak, what did the actual patients look like who they ended up including in the study itself? Yeah, the average age for patients was a typical hospital patient that I see around the age of 65. There were slightly more males than females, but not like a VA study. The Charleston comorbidity index had a score of three. Now, to put that into context, that's about a 77% 10-year survival. So, generally healthier patients it, with about 40% of these patients in the ICU. Now, one thing that um, I was looking at is that only 40% of the patients either had sepsis, severe sepsis, or septic shock. What that means is 60% of people didn't have any of those. <laughs> yeah, interesting that they're giving these heavy weapons of antibiotics to 60% of individuals who don't really have signs and symptoms of severe sepsis or even sepsis at all. And that, yeah, that, that surprised me a lot. Um, now, I don't think that affects the outcome seen in this study, but maybe is just a um, broader call for better antimicrobial stewardship. Always a good plug when you're covering something to get a second uh, bang for your buck. Okay. And uh, you already mentioned sort of what they were comparing. So tell us as far as what were they, what did they measure as far as the differences between the combinations of antibiotics used with vancomycin? So the primary outcome was acute kidney injury, which is a 50% increase in serum creatinine. Now, they did not measure changes in urine output, which I was a little disappointed to see, as this criteria is included in a lot of other definitions like rifle criteria. One of their important secondary outcomes was, did they return to their baseline serum creatinine? But this was only measured in the current hospital stay, so they did not do any follow-up outside of the current hospital stay. Right. And and just sort of speculating on potential mechanisms or um, potential reasons why differences in results may be not as true as we think, so to speak, does Piptazo have any mechanism whereby it 
um, could raise your CM, serum creatinine not through an acute kidney injury? So, for example, does it inhibit uh, um, excretion or secretion of creatinine in the, in the, in the kidney? That's a great question, Karen. So piperacillin tazobactam actually decreases tubular secretion and can result in creatinine um, going up on its own, along with um, decreasing the secretion of other antibiotics like vancomycin. And that's another reason why um, measuring urine output could be helpful in addition to looking at absolute changes in serum creatinine. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's an excellent point that you made. All right, so uh, let's dive into the results. What did they actually find? We've alluded to, obviously, that there's going to be a difference. Tell us, Chris, what was that difference? So that difference was a 21% absolute difference in the rates of AKI. Now, it's important to note that this cohort study was stopped early. Now, this really surprised me because I've never seen a observational study stopped early based on harm. <laughs> Stopping a study early can overestimate results, but that is known for more randomized controlled trials. It's hard to know what the effect would be for an observational study. Now, doing that, committing to stopping the study early, essentially is these investigators saying we're not going to continue with this combination anymore in our hospitals because we think it's going to cause harm. It's an interesting thing to do, although I, I guess when you have a 21% absolute difference in a significant harm, or at least a potential harm with an increased creatinine reflecting AKI, it's hard to ignore and carry on when you're doing a study ethically. So, you know, randomized trial or observational trial, regardless, I, I mean, it would be hard as a data safety monitoring board to ignore that and say carry on. Yeah, I agree. I I think there's a balance there, and I think we may not get any more prospective studies based on the results of of this trial since we're seeing such a big harm for patients. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's going to be difficult ethically to conduct a study if you have a prospective cohort study like this that shows such harm. And that harm you mentioned translates to a number needed to harm of? Uh, about five. Wow. So that's uh, fairly significant in the grand scheme of things. Okay. Well, uh, tell us then, Chris, did you have any concerns about the methodologies or did you have any other interesting points you wanted to, to raise for our listeners? So the study did have a few limitations. One, the study was stopped early, which could overestimate results. Two, they combined two different antibiotic combinations together in the control group. Now, when those were separated out, one of those was statistically significant and the other wasn't, but it was likely the subgroups were underpowered because the study was stopped early. Right. So what you're trying to say is that one combination of vancomycin and the comparator antibiotics was found to be significant and the other wasn't, although the combined two were, yet you might explain that lack of significance in one of the subgroups just due to underpowering. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that overall they've done a pretty good job to try to demonstrate a lack of differences between things that would be significant risk factors, so to speak, for developing AKI. So, for example, they, they talk about mean 
trough and uh, peak levels of vancomycin and duration of vancomycin exposure, both of which are known to be associated with AKI, as well as you mentioned other use of uh, medications and things that could contribute to AKI. But for me overall, the major question mark in my head for this finding is, what is the mechanism that's driving this? And is this a real concern with regards to a clinically important outcome for patients? i.e. is this a artifact of the way in which we measure AKI through serum creatinine or is this a true tubular injury with you know increased need for dialysis and uh, long-term uh, uh, poor renal outcomes? Yeah I think that's a great question and one that fully has not been answered yet in the literature and I'm hoping someone will shed more light on that question in the future. Yeah, and I think for me, uh, when I interpret this study and try to attempt to apply it to my practice, I just, there's too many question marks in my head as to whether this association is causal or not to really make a major change and no longer prescribe that combination. And I agree, it is hard to ignore that, that effect size that we see, but I just am not sure I truly believe these results. What do you think, Chris? I think... We have to make decisions with the best evidence that we have. And, you know, I struggle with, like, saying this absolutely causes AKI. I think we can say that there's an association there. I think there are other reasonable choices that we could use instead, like using the other, like, specifically using the combination of vancomycin and cefepime, but that ignores other potential risks like the risk for C. diff. So I don't think it's clear, like it's a, it is contraindicated to use these things together at this point in time. But the overwhelming evidence, if you look at it, it suggests that there could be association there. And maybe if you are going to use the combination, maybe try to practice good antimicrobial stewardship and narrow your agents as soon as possible. All right. I think that's a fair point. And if you're able to balance the risks and benefits of an alternative agent combination with vancomycin, uh, then it might be reasonable to do so, whether you truly believe these findings or not. So take it home for us, Chris. What do you think the main learning points you want our listeners to uh, walk away from this study is? So I think that when we're looking at patients with severe infections, if you're thinking about adding on vancomycin and piptazo, you have to ask, is this combination the one that is going to cause the least harm for my patient? And in some cases, that might be the best choice, but other times when there's alternatives that you can also use, you might want to consider that instead. Fair enough. And I, I think I'll consider that for the next patient that I see where I'm considering using the combination of those antibiotics. Well, thanks, Chris, for bringing that to the table. I think it was an informative study and uh, hopefully raises some interesting questions for our listeners out there uh, about their own practice. I'm going to move on now and introduce the article that I chose for this week. Uh, it's about managing migraines and Today we're going to look at a randomized trial that compared the use of prochlorperazine versus hydromorphone in patients who present to the emergency department with migraine. This study was published by Benjamin Friedman in uh, the journal Neurology in November of 2017. Great, Kieran. So what is the uh, main message that you found from this article? 
Well, Chris, this was a randomized trial, just over 120 patients who presented to the emergency department with migraine headache. And what the study investigators found was that the use of prochlorperazine uh, in combination with diphenhydramine was superior to treating migraine-related headache uh, over hydromorphone. And just like your study, it has an impressive number needed to treat of four. So this is yet another win for non-opioid analgesic strategies in the management of pain-related issues in the emergency department. Wow, that's interesting. So why, why did you choose the article personally over it just showing a large effect? It's been kind of an enlightening uh, journey through medical school and as a resident. And although I'm not a neurologist, I've certainly seen a variety of different emergency department physicians and neurologists who seem to have their own potion, this sort of magical potion that they use that treat for treating migraine. And there's a variety of different combinations that some will use. Some swear by a combination of ketorolac and metoclopramide. Others I've seen use prochlorperazine and some use ondansetron. Nevertheless, opioids are used to treat migraine. It's estimated in just over 50% of all emergency department visits. So they're commonly used. And obviously on this show and in the in the lay media as well as the medical research forum, the use of opioids and their long-term risks are increasingly uh, in the forefront of our, uh, of our thoughts. So despite the fact that time and time again now we're starting to demonstrate the efficacy of non-opioid strategies in different care settings and different conditions, we don't actually have high-quality evidence to support the uh, non-use of opioids for the treatment of migraine. So this study sought to do just that. Okay. So what was the design of the study? Where did it take place? Well, this was a well-conducted study. It was a double-blinded, randomized controlled trial. It was based in two emergency departments in the Montefiore Medical Center, which is an urban teaching medical center located in the Bronx in New York. Uh, and it was conducted between 2015 and 2017. And who were the patients that were included with the study? So they included adults that were greater than or equal to 21 years of age who presented to the emergency department for the treatment of migraine. Now, they were excluded from the trial if the treating physician had suspicion that a different disease process other than a migraine was occurring. And that included patients who required emergent brain imaging, those who presented with a fever and would suggest alternative uh, neurological infections, perhaps, or patients with objective neurological findings. Now, sometimes you can have neurological findings in migraine, but certainly you have to be concerned about other things like ischemic events. And so you, you don't want to be ignoring that when you're including patients in a trial for just the treatment of pure migraine, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, I noticed that um, a large number of patients were uh, excluded. They had about 10% of the people that they screened. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to the you know, the, the variation in presentation and the challenge it com when it comes to um, diagnosing and, uh, and working up migraine because it is a clinical diagnosis and uh, a lot of, you know, sinister neurological conditions can present like a migraine. And so you have to be concerned that you're not missing something. Great. So what was the main intervention so they first did an in interesting thing. They took participants and they actually stratified them by the presenting level of pain, whether that was moderate, severe, um, and also by the study site at those two different academic centers. And then individuals were randomized to receive either prochlorperazine at 10 milligrams intravenous 
with a combination of diphenhydramine of 25 milligrams. And that was used uh, to prevent uh, akathisia, which for those of you who are unaware is an uncomfortable feeling of inner restlessness or being unable to sit still. And the comparator group received a milligram of IV hydromorphone with uh, normal saline as placebo to uh, mask the use of diphenhydramine as well. Now, individuals could receive a second dose of the same medication they were randomized to one hour after the initial medication infusion was begun um, if they requested it uh, due to uncontrolled symptoms. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Seems like they did a good job with the blinding. So what was the primary outcome? So they wanted to look at the ability of these medications to provide what they called sustained headache relief. Now, that meant that a participant experienced a reduction in their headache level from, as I mentioned, moderate or severe down to mild or zero uh, headache within two hours of the medication administration. But they also define sustained headache relief as those who did not require any rescue analgesics beyond their treatment arm to help with their pain and also not to relapse with their headache to worse than mild within a 48-hour period. If any of those conditions were not satisfied, that individual uh, was counted as a treatment failure. And so ultimately, they uh, performed these assessments for your severity of your headache every hour in the emergency department until the patient was discharged or until four hours had elapsed, and then they called patients at 48 hours to reassess their symptoms. As far as secondary outcomes are concerned, they looked at a variety of different self-reported adverse effects from medications. They asked about headaches over the following four weeks uh, after the trial, and they measured things like functional disability, emergency department length of stay, and need for return visits. So sort of a composite of different uh, impacts that migraine might have on people, both symptomatically, functionally, and in a healthcare utilization sense. All right, so what did they find? So, Chris, I'll take you through the results here of the population that actually ended up being included. Uh, your typical patient was a young woman in her 30s. She presented with a severe headache for the past 48 to 72 hours of duration, and they had tried some form of analgesia, although that wasn't clarified as to what that might be, prior to presentation to the emergency department. Now, overall, the study was halted by the Data Monitoring Committee after 127 patients had been enrolled, uh, because there was overwhelming superiority of one of the treatment arms. Now, that overwhelming superiority was found in the prochlorperazine arm, where sustained headache relief was achieved in almost twice as many individuals. So 60% of the individuals who received prochlorperazine achieved sustained headache relief, compared to the hydromorphone arm, uh, which was only 31% achieved the outcome. Now, we talked a lot about treatment failures, so that's just the math is just simply the inverse. So 40% of people in the prochlorperazine had a treatment failure versus 69% in the hydromorphone arm. To put this into clinical practice findings, that was a number needed to treat of four. And about a quarter, 25 more per percent more of patients requested a second dose of medications in the opioid arm and experienced more adverse effects, which were typically reported as dizziness or weakness uh, due to the opioids. So a very impressive uh, finding overall. Okay. So in addition to that, was there anything else that caught your eye or any interesting points that you wanted to make? 
Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, that the Data Safety Monitoring Committee stopped this trial early. And as you mentioned previously in your study, doing so can have the effect of overestimating the effect size. So having a number needed to treat of four might not be four, it might be six, it might be 10, because you stopped it a little bit early as a consequence of that. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that they didn't actually talk about whether these participants in this trial had been previously exposed to hydromorphone or prochlorperazine. And so, you know, if a patient has experienced this before, they might be aware of what, how that drug makes them feel, and that may ultimately affect their reporting of their headache if they're biased in some way towards one treatment versus the other. So that's one potential source of bias uh, to consider in this study. Okay. So what do you think the main learning points of the article is? Well, I think first and foremost that this is a really well-done trial. There's not a lot of fatal flaws that I can find uh, to really say that these findings shouldn't be believable. And they're obviously supported by a wealth of prior studies, albeit not as high quality, that support the use of prochlorperazine, and certainly neurological societies do as well. So the main learning points and the take-home messages are that non-opioid strategies, in the case of this trial specifically prochlorperazine, in combination with diphenhydramine, is more effective in the treatment of acute migraine in the emergency department over opioids. And in 2018, I think that most experts, and there's a few different neurologists who I spoke to in preparation for this episode, would argue that opioids are really neither recommended nor should be used for the treatment of acute migraine, unless as a last resort where you've tried a variety of other therapies and they're just not working. And so what's the novelty of this trial, if there's been prior research and guidelines are recommending this? Well, I think it now gives us a tool uh, that is the high-quality evidence to say to people, look, these are better medications, or at least prochlorperazine and diphenhydramine is a better medication to use for migraine, and here's the evidence why. Yeah, this definitely sounds like a great article to have in your back pocket. Absolutely. Well, a great discussion of two fantastic articles this week, but now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. And Chris, tell me what's catching your eye in the medical literature this week. So I recently read an interesting review article in Clinical Infectious Disease addressing the dogma of bactericidal antibiotics versus bacteriostatic. And in school, I was really taught that bactericidal antibiotics work better. But this article provides a lot of evidence to show that there's really no difference in outcomes with bactericidal and bacteriostatic, and that it largely comes down to how these things are defined. And so I would really recommend taking a few minutes to read this one. It's a quick read, and it will change how you think about antibiotics. And I got to say on a personal motivation kind of note, I am thankful that that's the case because I could never remember which antibiotics uh, belonged to which class of action, so to speak, cidal or static. So I'm happy that I don't have to do that anymore. All I need to remember is that my patients need the right antibiotic indicated by the condition that they have. Perfect. Well, Chris, I uh, am moving away a little bit from the infectious disease world. I read a an article that actually has some personal application to me. And I'm not sure if you've ever considered or, or, or thought about drinking coffee before uh, an athletic 
competition or a performance to improve your overall performance. But it turns out that this study that was conducted looked at your genetic um, underpinning and whether the effects of coffee are different in individuals based on that. Now, I have always found that I have a sensitivity to coffee. It makes me kind of amped up. And I watch in horror as I see other people like my wife, for example, who can drink a cup of coffee before bed and sleep blissfully all night. So I actually take advantage of my sensitivity to caffeine and drink a cup of coffee before I go on call and my patients are exposed to a slightly hyperactive physician. But it turns out that there actually may be a genetic basis to this and it also applies to athletic performance. So athletes with a particular variant of one of the CYP1A2 genes actually showed notable improvements in their endurance performance after swallowing caffeine. And those with a different variant of that gene may perform worse if they first have caffeine. And so you, you, can, you can break people down into fast metabolizers. And by most estimates, about half of us are fast metabolizers. And about 10% are slow metabolizers, and the rest are sort of somewhere in between. But if you're a slow metabolizer, your endurance performance was actually reduced by 14% if you had caffeine before you, you exercised. And then I remembered in high school, I took a genetic test as part of some science day in university. And it turns out that I was genetically confirmed slow metabolizer. And so I kind of was interesting both from a effects of caffeine and genetics on endurance, but also on a personal level about why caffeine affects me. And maybe if you're one of those people who you find caffeine particularly affects you, you might have a variant of the CYP1A2 gene. But ultimately, thank God, medicine isn't an endurance sport. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us on the show. We really had a great time uh, going through our articles, and I really hope you're able to join us again in the future because I really do uh, appreciate the perspective you bring as a clinical pharmacist to our roundtable. All right. Thank you so much, Karen. I look forward to coming back in the future. The Roundstable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Burma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.